Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got an interview show for you today. We're going to be talking with Amin Galani from 4IQ, and they specialized in ID theft, identity theft, and not just preventing, but also actually kind of mitigating and tracking down the bad guys. So this will be a very interesting discussion. I want to touch on a couple things before we get into that, however. Uh, last week, we talked about Firefox and the, some of the new protections they're putting in. And I was saying on the Mac, I couldn't find where the privacy report was. And uh, I found it. So I wanted to, if you um, have Firefox 70 and you want to see what there it is, if you go to the and just any website you're at, the little address bar in the upper left, little shield next lock icon in that area, if you click on that, uh, there's a little at the very bottom of that window, there's a show report. And uh, now you can kind of see what Firefox has been doing for you. I definitely uh, recommend you check that out because it's been doing a lot for you and probably more than you more than you would believe is necessary. And one more thing that I really should have mentioned last week and uh, didn't get around to doing is uh, I was on the other side of the interview table recently. Uh, the DefendingDigital.com site uh, reviewed my book, did a really, really thorough review of my book uh, not that long ago. Uh, and we had got into some discussions and he invited me on his show to be a guest. So, uh, uh, kind of, kind of a different perspective for me. And, uh, so anyway, if you, uh, it was a really fun time at a great interview. And if you'd like to listen to that podcast, go check out, uh, defending slash podcast. Uh, and you'll, uh, you can find it from there. Now, before we get into the interview, there were a couple terms we went over uh, in, in the interview that I might want to l explain before we get there. Uh, one of them being IoT, or the Internet of Things. I know we've just talked about that several times on the show, but just wanted to make sure we spelled that one out. And, you know, and just remind you, those, you know, that's basically this uh, movement to uh, connect everything to the Internet, even things that probably have no business being connected to the, <laughs> to the Internet. Uh, we refer to that generically as the Internet of Things. Also, we talk a little bit about the dark web and the deep web, uh, and they are different. So the, the deep web really is, is all the websites, all the, all the pages that are not directly indexed by Google and DuckDuckGo and all those other search engines. Because you can, you know, if you actually, if, if you're a website owner, you can actually tell these, what they call these web crawlers, uh, not to index certain pages on your website. So, you know, it's a lot of those kind of pages and just some other pages that are generally inaccessible to, you know, Google's web crawlers uh, looking for content. And the dark web, uh, which is different from the deep web, is more of a high privacy zone. Uh, and, the, you know, because it's very anonymous and very hard to track, of course, a lot of illicit activity happens there. But it's not strictly for illicit activity, as we will discuss in the show. And last but not least, we do talk about the uh, the Tor network, T-O-R, it used to stand for the onion router, uh, and now it's just plain old Tor. But uh, because of that legacy name, uh, these private dark web addresses are usually called onion sites or onion addresses, and they end in a dot O-N-I-O-N address. So if you're surfing the dark web and you're looking for these secret sites, they're usually dot onion sites. So anyway, we, we make a brief mention of that. And I just thought I'd throw out a couple, a couple of these definitions before we get into it. So when we do hear these things and we don't take the time in the interview to stop and define them, that you know what we're talking about. So uh, given that, let's just let's get right to it. Let's get to our interview with Amin Galani. Amin Galati leads strategy and product at a company called 4IQ. 
He served in the Air Force as an intelligence analyst, was on a detail at the National Security, Security Agency and the U.S. Cyber Command, and later went on to lead Red Team Operations at Goldman Sachs. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, and you've got a really unique background, so I'm kind of looking forward to some of the answers to some of these questions I've got for you. Um, but you know, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your past? It sounds very interesting. Uh, tell us how you came to be uh, where you're at now at 4IQ, and then maybe a little bit about what your company does. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you mentioned, my background is in the Air Force. I uh, joined right after 9-11. Um, actually wanted to join the Marine Corps, but the office was closed. So I ended up going to the Air Force <laughs> office next door. <laughs> and then uh, they intrigued me and, and offered offered several opportunities that sounded very James Bond-like. Mm. Um, and so I uh, really was interested in intelligence and you know started my career at NSA and uh, did mostly computer network operations and information operations. And really, that's, that's kind of a vague term, but essentially really tracking and tracing cyber criminals uh, yeah. and, and terrorists, essentially, right? So we were, were focused on kind of uncovering their methods, uh, understanding where money is flowing through, um, as well as being able to, being able to disrupt, uh, most importantly. And after NSA, I moved on to DHS to do more computer network defense type of work. Um, led intelligence at US CERT at the time. It's, it's now no longer called US CERT, but mm. um, back at DHS and then moved on to Goldman Sachs, uh, where I led Red Team. And we kind of emulated similar attacks that happened at Bangladesh Central Bank. So the $81 million heist that happened via the compromise of, of SWIFT uh, payment platforms, we try to emulate things like that. So mm. really making sure that um, you know the payment systems and the security of them is is really the main the main concern to you know avoid any disruption of of payments. Sure. Yeah. Then later I, I ran into uh, the CEO of of 4IQ who was uh, who's who's Monica Powell and uh, she asked for some feedback on her product and I thought it was super interesting because because it, it solved a very interesting problem of attribution. Mm. So I gave uh, product feedback several times and then she later asked like Hey, you should do this full time and so. <laughs> now leading product for before iq all right well very interesting that's a very yeah. uh, colorful background <laughs> yeah thank you and just to tell you a little bit more about about for iq it's yeah. um it's an adversary intelligence company and essentially what we do is we help intelligence analysts unmask adversaries whether it be cyber criminals or insiders and and any other type of bad people that that would be masking their identity in any way Gotcha. And we'll definitely dive, in, uh, dive into some of that in a little bit. Um, but first, let, I kind of like to ask this question for people that are really smart and have a lot of background like you uh, and your particular case uh, especially. So what do you, what do you think uh, are the top threats right now in the world of cybersecurity for the, like for the average person? Yeah, I mean, for, for, uh, for the average person, I mean, of course, there's, you know, um, I would say that anything that's related to financial uh, any type of financial gain, malware enabled for financial gain. Let's say, for example, TrickBot or Drydex or Zeus. I think those types of banking malwares remain at the top. But as far as even individuals, they're being you know uh, plagued with ransomware. Mm -hmm. um, there's small businesses out there that just they just get popped with ransomware on a daily basis, right? And being able to you know uh, recover from that is really difficult for those who are not you know, very savvy in that. So I think ransomware for, you know, just general public is actually pretty, is, is pretty big, right? And yeah. for the enterprise level, I think the biggest threats there are the, just like the threats that you just don't know about, right? So um, whether it be a previous compromise um, at your enterprise or your organization and not knowing about it and, you know, just continuing to add all the, all the tool suites on top of that, but not knowing if, if there is a, an adversary persistent in your network. Is, is very dangerous, right? And so that's why 
performing, you know, threat hunting and understanding any type of anomalies within your network and doing scrubs, you know, frequently is, is very important. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, from the enterprise level, I think the biggest uh, threat to an organization is still the people, right? Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a very common answer, I think, but you know, the, like the strengths and weaknesses of your organization will really rely on your people, right? Doing, um, of course, like, you know, the basic hygiene, but also just having a more aware workforce, you know, being able to, you know, not click on that spear phishing link or, you know, just being able to just be a little bit more aware of, of, of types of communications that come through uh, your inbox. And what do you think about trends? Like, you know, is it, how's it shifted in the last five years where you maybe see it going? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Well, how, oh, how are things changed? Yeah. yeah. So of course, of course it's gotten worse. I think <laughs> only because it's, it's just expanded now, right? Like there's just more devices that a person has. There's just more chances of a person mm-hmm. just being compromised, right? Whether it be through your, your iPad or your, your other, other devices is continuing to grow. And I think we, so we put out a report recently on behalf of 4IQ and we talked about like the, like the long tail of breaches, right? And it's, it's really all about these smaller businesses that are just being plagued, right? Medium to small businesses that, that don't have the, uh, the security and the architecture or the resources in order to get in front of these advanced attacks, right? And so, um, of course, these, these attacks have evolved, but so have defenses, but defenses have kind of been more catered towards more mature enterprises where, you know, the medium to small businesses are kind of left behind and kind of just left exposed. Yeah. So we talk a lot about prevention uh, on this podcast and how to not get there in the first place, but your, your company is actually in kind of a unique position of kind of coming in after the fact, right? So something's happened and then, and then looking at the forensics to try to figure out what happened and who did and who done it, right? So... I know from many of the stories I've read, especially when you start talking about what appear to be state actors, it's really kind of difficult to definitively say who did it. Uh, why? Why is attribution so difficult? So attribution, I think, I think attribution is just like this quixotic word that everybody just wants to be a part of, right? Like, and everyone has strong opinions on it, about it, right? Because mostly when you hear attribution, the next word you hear is retaliation. Hmm. Right. Like it's always about you want to attribute it so you can attack back or, you know, put some policies against, you know, a certain country or 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 an entity. Right. Hmm. And, um, you know, for for nation state type attacks, usually they're not that, you know, lately they haven't been so noisy. Whereas in the past, we've seen things that are just like, you know, extremely loud. And and you see that things that are also exposed, like let's say, for example, whenever OPM happened. Right. Like everyone knows that that was a nation state behind office of personnel, uh, the office of personnel management attack. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the fact that, you know, you don't know what happened with that data is very is very hard to understand. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, you know, you don't know how, how that data of all the government employees that have ever existed mm-hmm. um, is going to be weaponized. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so that's why attribution is so is so difficult uh, in, in theory, because there's so many pieces of evidence that you need along the way. Right. You need the threat vector. You need all the forensic evidence against it. And then even when you do have like a like a technical report of what types of tools and and what was used to you know move laterally and stuff like that, you still don't know who really did it. Right. There's that trail that there's a huge disconnect of, of when of when that data was exfiltrated or even the point of entry to a real person or even infrastructure after that right so that's why nation state is very is very difficult to like a nation state espionage attack is very difficult to attribute mm-hmm. whereas cyber criminal work is actually a lot easier to track and that's that's where we excel at the most right mm-hmm. and the reason why cyber crime is easier to track uh, from an attribution perspective is that 
is that at the end of the day, it's all about making money, right? And people mm. are going to put these cyber criminals are going to end up putting that information outside, right? Somehow, right? They're going to be in the it's going to be in the dark market, or it's going to be um, at in some kind of marketplace, or in in some kind of chats where where it's being sold, right? And yeah. really, the life cycle of all of this is you know from from uh, you know let's say for example a a very high risk uh, third party. Uh, let's say, for example, a gas station, right? If a gas station were able to uh, was 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 compromised and all the credit cards that belonged on the, on these systems were compromised, um, usually that person will probably go to um, you know uh, some kind of forum or give it to a broker first, right? This person will give all this data to a broker, and the broker will put a price on it, and then you'll get and then eventually it'll it'll sell to somebody and they'll take advantage of that data as well, right? And so, but the fact that there's a trail between the point of compromise to a real person and mm. who they want. Um, you know, sell it to that type of that type of trail is is what we track uh, best at, and it's through their usernames or their crypto wallets, um, whatever it might be. If it if it has an identity next to it, we can unmask that to a real person. Yeah, that's actually uh, a very interesting point that I hadn't really considered from that angle. Is that you know stealing information for information's sake, which you know might be espionage, like, uh, where the, once the information's gone, the crime is complete. Uh, compared to, you know, the more common criminals that really need to convert whatever they stole to money, hard cash, right? It's, it's kind of like the classic, you know, diamond or art thief who eventually has to fence that somewhere, uh, <laughs> right? And uh, and that oftentimes they get caught with the fencing as opposed to the, the, the burglar itself. Yeah, exactly. Like even, even um, and, and every little attribute of of your business for a cyber criminal can all be traced, right? I mean, whether it be cyber crime or mm. be terrorism, if there's any kind of trail behind it, you can definitely catch them, right? Like even yesterday, there was a huge, um, huge news story about how this child porn site was discovered, yeah. and you know, over 330 people were arrested. Um, and really, we see that uh, the law enforcement authorities and uh, what they did was they used Bitcoin to track everybody. Mm. Right. And so it's incredibly powerful. And, you know, a lot of people have like the same notion that, you know, if I do my business via cryptocurrency, then I'm completely protected. Right. Or if I use a couple of mixers or use different currencies, that's completely doable. But the thing about it, the like majority of, well, of course, like Bitcoin itself is very transparent. Right. There are more uh, secure and privacy related um, crypto uh, you know, tokens available. Mm. But uh, for the most part, business is conducted on Bitcoin and all those transactions are recorded forever. It's very uh, easy to see, and you're able to de-anonymize these people as well, uh, depending on what kind of information you have tied to your accounts. Gotcha. So, you know, when we think about a regular crime scene, a physical crime scene, you know, we've we've watched enough cop shows to know that you know there's there's trace evidence, there's DNA, there's hair samples, there's something under someone's fingernails, there's footprints, there's fingerprints. Mm -hmm. In the digital world, like at a high level, without getting terribly technical, what what are the mm -hmm. digital forensics? What are, what is what's the analogy in the digital world? Yeah, I would say that when it comes to uh, your own attributes, right? Like it, it would be. It could be anything from like your your banking information number, or it can be your IP address, it can be your email address, your crypto wallet, pretty much anything that you have like written down that mm -hmm. associates with your identity uh, can be can be used as an identity uh, method. Gotcha. Um, even like even for example, uh, like your social security numbers and stuff like that too. 
So you mentioned, you know, that some that at some point these guys want to sell this and they may sell it to a broker or whatever. Talk to us a little bit about that economy. And and, and I know that a lot of this probably takes place on what's called the quote unquote dark web. So mm-hmm. so kind of explain to us what that is, how one gets to it, and like what what is the economy for for stolen information look like? Yeah, absolutely. So of course, like the dark web and, and deep web. So so uh, the dark web is sometimes mistakenly known for is actually the deep web. The dark web is comprised of like hidden or not indexed sites that are inaccessible with regular browsers like Google, Yahoo, and DuckDuckGo. Uh, the dark web is a space that offers extreme privacy and protection from uh, governments and authorities, right? Um, but you know, uh, of course, like you you assume that the dark web is just filled with you know drug trafficking mm-hmm. and human trafficking and uh, you know ex- exploiting children, whether it be child porn or um, even illegal firearms and stuff like that, right? So so you do see like a like a direct connotation to like bad activities, right. but in a more gray space, it's also a place to like protect you know dissidents from persecution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think about like whistleblowers or people living in oppressive you know government regimes mm-hmm. and stuff like that that need protection, right? Um, again, and then on the dark side, again, there's, you know, of course, extremist groups and other things that are also part of it, right? Um, and and essentially in these dark marketplaces, I guess, is, is your question. And, um, you know, the types of things that are sold there, of course, like are all the illicit activities that I mentioned before. But, you know, the, the life cycle of, a, you know, a data breach it usually does happen from, you know, a person that is actually conducting the bad, the bad activity and and uh, you know having a broker who who buys that data and can resell it somewhere else who wants to take advantage of that right and usually the life cycle of it is is actually really interesting right because we see that you know all this data gets hacked and then you know it, it resurfaces over and over again right and mm-hmm. usually it's it's after these people have taken advantage of this data or have blackmailed people or you know emptied out their bank accounts or even uh, you know, like do false insurance claims. And even the sad part sometimes about this data is that people take advantage of this data so they can get health insurance for themselves. But it's actually very sad. Yeah, <laughs> very I've sad heard of that. Dilemma, that is crazy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so and so that does happen. And um, and, you know, eventually these these breaches will kind of get used up and basically all the value has, will, will be taken out and then it'll be dumped again. Right. And so. Um, you know, sometimes in the news, it gets seen as another breach that has occurred, but really it, it could just be another re-release of that breach. And, you know, that that's when you have like the vultures of the dark web just taking advantage of them again. Right. And that's when you see, you know, people trying to uh, recreate, you know, uh, personas and stuff like that based on your identity. So um, it, it is a really long cycle of, of, of data. Right. And sometimes, um, you know, the more sophisticated adversaries won't publish it, right? Like this, these, this data will be, you know, compromised and then they'll hold on to it and like strategically target uh, the right people or accounts that they want to take advantage of, right? Before it's really publicly uh, released. So the, how does one get to the dark web? Is it, it do, do these criminals somehow in person exchange these secret web addresses, these un, uh, onion addresses often with the Tor network or... It, or are there other how do they how do they exchange the information that allows them to, to hook up in the in the in the deep web space without yeah. the authorities getting a hold of that? Yeah, absolutely. So so I think a lot of the all of, a lot of these transactions just happen in various ways, right? You can of course like join um, you know through Tor or even on on Surface Web on uh, you know just these forums that are widely available, like raid forums. Like a lot of breaches are just available on raid forums as well as other other illicit activities that you can you can be a part of, right? But these raid forums can even be public and uh, you can see what's up for sale and uh, what type of information is out there. And you can actually just contact the, the people with, like through their ERC chats or whatever usernames they have, even Skype, right? 
And so you can actually, you know, communicate with them and kind of verify them. And uh, usually, you know, payments happen in different streams, right? They'll say, hey, use use my, you know, crypto wallet and send it here. Or And even, even whenever they want to publish a breach, they can actually just go to an open site like Dropbox or Mega and then just like post their breach hmm. there, right? And then they pick it up. And then once, once, you know, you send a chat saying, hey, I've already picked it up, they can delete it then, right? So not everything happens. It's not like you just go underneath and like you just open up a Tor browser and all of a sudden all the business mm-hmm. is conducted there. It's not necessarily like that, right? I think a lot of the cryptic, you know, conversations happen there. But then, you know, real business can just happen pretty much anywhere in, in plain sight. Since I've got you in particular on the call, I've got to ask this question because it's uh, it's coming up again. It's becoming a big issue. And uh, I would think that you'd have some interesting perspective on this. And that is the U.S. Department of Justice is worrying that we're, quote unquote, going dark uh, with the wide adoption of end to end encryption for our communications. And uh, in fact, recently, the DOJ uh, in concert with the UK and Australian governments have requested like specifically to Facebook who had announced that they were going to, uh, implement end-to-end encryption on all their messaging apps. They said, please mm-hmm. don't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically said, if you, if you do, you know, please make sure that we've got some way, well, and we all call it a backdoor and that has, that's taken mm-hmm. on all this overloaded meaning is what that really means, but they want some sort of privileged universal access uh, to these end-to-end encryption so that they can do their job. So they, if they feel like if they don't have that, they can't pr- protect us. So it's a touchy subject, but what, what is your yeah. take on that? What are we, are we really going dark? What does end-to-end encryption, a good thing or a bad thing? And what do you, what do you make of these governments asking for essentially privileged access? Yeah. And I think this would definitely be a personal opinion rather than sure. <laughs> behalf of any company I've ever worked for in the past. But I think end-to-end uh, encryption is great, right? So I think that if you were to compromise your product just just for the sake of you know privacy or, or security issues, if, if you're going to compromise your product, then, then someone else will uh, take advantage of it eventually, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, just, just because you created a backdoor doesn't mean that only one authority has backdoor. Like now right. you've actually, it's encoded that there is a, there is a loophole here, right? right. And, and I think that um, doing so actually affects the business as well. So like, I, you know, it's nice that the government is asking, you know, private companies to, to make it a little easier for, uh, for them to track, you know, like really legitimate things like they want to track terrorism or they want to child, uh, track child pornography and stuff like that, right? It's, it's a very valid use case. But the fact is that at the end of the day, uh, Facebook is, it's, is a business, right? And they are plagued with privacy issues all the time, right? And so the fact that they're moving one step and trying to increase privacy, uh, really the government would, wouldn't have any impact on, on this, right? They're, they're going to continue to do what's best for their, for, mm-hmm. for their business, but as well as, you know, gaining confidence back into, into their users. And just like, you know, the San Bernardino incident too, yeah, right? Like yeah. it's a, it's a catch 22. It's so hard to, to have a, a, you know, like a valid point on either end because, because, you know, I, I feel like, you know, it, it's, it would be really helpful to know, like, what, uh, what other contacts were on this, on this phone of, of, of this terrorist attacks, right? So we want to know exactly who's behind it, if there's any more coming. And, you know, all FBI was asking was like, hey, can you just have a backdoor so we can just open, we can just unlock this phone. That's all we're asking for, mm-hmm. is just to unlock this phone. And, you know, they couldn't get it out of, out of Apple, so they, you know, hired an Israeli company in order to do that for them, right? And mm-hmm. so... So I think eventually there's there's somewhat a way around it if you try hard enough. But but I think that uh, if you were to 
let's say for for example, Facebook budge and like, all right, fine, we'll create a backdoor for for WhatsApp. And uh, you know, all the all these bad people uh, that you wanted to track anyway are just going to go to a different service. Yeah. it's just uh, it's just gonna it's just they're just gonna move on. Yeah. I mean, they already have. I mean, ISIS has already come up with their own messaging app uh, because you know that uses full end yeah. encryption, and it's it's just math, and you can't really outlaw math. And there's all sorts of free software out there that you could roll your own today. And yeah, so that that's definitely an argument. The thing they always got me though is that it really it seems like what they want is universal access, mm-hmm. and you know, either a single magic skeleton key that gets into all these conversations, or something like that 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 allows them at any point to get into any conversation that, and. I, technologically, I totally agree that 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 would just fundamentally break communications. But what I think they really want, or maybe that would be more in line with the Fourth Amendment, uh, at least in the U.S., is some sort of highly restricted, limited access, like a certain person at a certain time on a certain device. And that is something that I don't know how they would do, um, mm-hmm. practically speaking. So, uh, but anyway, we're, we're back in the fight again. This was all fought back in the nineties with the crypto wars, the original crypto wars with the clipper chip. And, and it's just, it just never seems to quite go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. So back to some other things. Why is it, why is it that we cannot seem to prevent these data breaches? They're happening all the time and they've been going on for years. Have we, what have we not learned or is it just that hard to secure data in the internet? Well, you would think that, you know, if there's over 1,200 cyber companies now, you should be able to kind of prevent this now, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but I think, you know, to my initial, to my point earlier about the biggest threats to, you know, like the biggest cybersecurity threats, I think is still going to remain people, right? I think the main entry points to breaches and an organization's data, it, it's it's usually phishing attacks and it, it just kind of sits at it sits at the at the end user, right? Or it could be just bad passwords. It can be just various, you know, just this weak security practices that continue to to end up being, you know, larger breaches, right? So we have, you know, accidental leaks. We see so many breaches from poorly configured or unprotected servers and cloud-based technologies, right? You have to consider weak third-party supply chain vendors and partners that lack security. And, you know, if you're not able to, you know, uh, take just the basic, you know, cybersecurity practices and, and uh, you know, implement like the normal hygiene, then, you know, it's just going to be even more, right? So I would say go back to basics. And I don't think there's any way you're going to be preventing data breaches anytime soon, right? As more people put more data on their on their devices and this whole, you know, I'm going to say it in air quotes, but this whole IoT, you know, generation, it's mm-hmm. just going to continue to just be even more, right? Like even, even for example, like my fitness pal was breached a while ago and there mm-hmm. was, you know, things that were breached are just like nonsense, right? Like I don't want to know how many, you know, calories anyone <laughs> ate, like, but hey, that's, it could be a part of a breach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and so I was going to say, like, you know, in order to, you know, to prevent breaches in general, like, I think from, like, an enterprise perspective, there's, you know, um, where I've seen it work in my in my previous job is that the entire infrastructure was just in such a uh, draconian way, right? It was, everything was just, like, cut off. There's no access to Facebook. There is uh, no access to webmail. Um, is pretty much only your work stuff related and whitelisted apps, right? And and you know if you have if you have that kind of environment, then and you lock security down that much from an enterprise perspective, it's actually very helpful, right? Or you can go the other way, which is Orwellian, when you just watch mm-hmm. what everyone does, mm-hmm. and it's uh, usually you know employees don't like that, right? Right. Even though you you probably already signed something that that allows oh, yeah. your 
your sock to do that. But oh, yeah. hey, you know, but 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 still, like you know, if it's if it's a blatant thing, then you know, it's it's uh, harder to navigate. So we've talked kind of vaguely about uh, who's behind some of these attacks, but what 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 really do we know about the types of types of attackers that are exfiltrating this data? You, we've talked about nation states. We've talked about individual hackers. Like what what's the breakdown of that? And then or and what. What are the purposes of most of these things? Like uh, my understanding is in a lot of these cases, these guys are getting the data, but they don't directly use it. They just turn around and sell it to somebody else who may even turn around and sell it to someone else. There's like this, mm-hmm. this whole kind of a chain market. So tell us a little bit more about what we know about the people that are behind these data breaches. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone would, subs- uh, would, would suspect that it's China or Russia, right? Mm-hmm. It's so generalized and it's so inaccurate as well, right? Mm-hmm. I think that you know, like state-sponsored attacks has actually uh, shrunk a lot. Um, I think there's a CrowdStrike report that state-sponsored has actually gone. Actually, e-crime has actually gone so much, so much higher. Hmm. Whereas, you know, um, you know, the the 2019 stats so far, it's only 39% are state uh, state-sponsored and 61% is, is cybercrime. Okay. Right. Hmm. So you can see that there's a significant push on on cybercrime is because it's just easier to it's easier to do. Right. You can you can purchase exploits, you know, anywhere like pretty quickly and become a cybercrime like, you know, chief yourself. Right. So it's, it's changed a lot. And from like a geographical perspective, it's not always just like like Russia, as you would say. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's very wrong to think that because even whenever we discovered a little bit more about like the, the newer strings of ransomware, like like WannaCry 2.0 is actually like when, one of the authors of WannaCry 2.0 is actually based out of Algeria. He was mm. African, right? So it can literally be anywhere. You see so many more reports that you have, you know, increasing capabilities in in the Middle East, but as well as even here in the U.S. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. So one of the particular things that that, that your company works on, and one of the one of the probably most devastating outcomes of some of these data thefts is, you know, using that data to turn around and steal someone's identity. Um, mm-hmm. So for that particular crime, what is, what are some of the most common ways that identities are stolen? And is it like, how often is it targeted versus somehow opportunistic, you know, some sort of automated bot out there that's just kind of churning through things and trying to find identity information? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you, as, as I was telling you earlier, there's a lot of you know older breaches that are out there, old breaches, um, and you know people sometimes recycle passwords for mm-hmm. years, right? They might just use the same password over and over again, and you know if those if the specific apps have you know never require you to change passwords, they might just continue using it, right? And uh, and and so I think password reuse is one of the biggest tactics. And you know what I was saying about these older breaches is that you can use like password spraying methods. Um, and just kind of test all these accounts to see if they work or not, right. right? And so that's why I think the biggest threat to a consumer is just old passwords. Hmm. Just don't use old and weak passwords. But there's also, and, and, and that's just like the best you can do right now, right? Hmm. And I think that, of course, using you know two-factor authentication and stuff like that, if available, always do that. But but there's also also things you can't control. Like I've always had strong passwords, uh, just like from my na- like background <laughs> nature, I always sure. want to use strong passwords, but... I've been in so many breaches, like my fitness pal, like my calorie count, my, my calorie counts are out there now, right? So, uh, but anyway, um, like Evite, Yahoo, Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, University of Maryland, my voter records, uh, mm. undergrad records, all, all these things that are just out there, right? Like how I voted, who I voted, you know, it's just uh, in my address, everything is just out there, right? And there are things that you just can't control. 
And that's just because it goes back to our initial point of just like basic hygiene for, for people who, who hold your data. Wow. Right. And, you know, your second, um, your second question about, you know, what percentage of, uh, you know, identity thefts are targeted versus oppor- opportunistic. You know, I, I think like most of the ones that we see nowadays are just very focused on opportunistic um, attacks, right? It's all about financial gain. Um, it's just a lot faster. There's mm-hmm. a growing underground economy just based on credentials and stolen credit cards. And I think it's just a it's just majority that way. You know, and the targeted attacks are probably the ones that you just won't hear about until later. Right. Like it took like a year and a half or it actually took a long time for for the DNC attack to be, you know, fully uncovered, mm-hmm. right? Exactly how that happened, how John Podesta was, was, um, you know, given a spear phishing link. And, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, this was, you know, a very targeted attack. And I think that in this sense, it, it's, it's either or, right? I think the ones that you'll see immediately will be opportunistic, but then um, the targeted ones are just, are just the more scary ones and need to know <laughs> how it's going to be used strategically by the adversary. Okay, so let's say the worst has happened and, and something happens that convinces me that my identity has been stolen. Maybe my uh, somebody calls me and say, hey, you know, you're overdue on your loan, which I never opened. Or I go to my doctor <laughs> yeah. and, the, you know, they say I had this procedure that I never had. You know, so once when I when I first get the clue that, oh, my God, I think my identity has been stolen. What what do I do next? And, and is there a is there like a time window where if I act quick enough, I can somehow mitigate future damage? Yeah, absolutely. So there are obviously services out there that that help you with this, like like LifeLock and stuff like that. But I think the first thing you want to do is, of course, call your bank and let them know that this is not real, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's also other things that you can do. There's a consumer act where you can actually freeze your credit. Um, mm-hmm. You can freeze your credit and say that, hey, like I just want to stop everything that's going to be happening against my credit. You know, there's of course like repercussions as well. Like you may not be able to, you know, you know, spend your credit cards or whatever. But you need to uh, first of all let your banks know that what's the truth and what is not. And you know, like like unfortunately, like the the bad things about this is that your credit will be hurt initially, right? So yeah. contacting. Um, you know, the, the, these like these credit agencies and hopefully they can they can reverse it. Right. And it's, it's just really tough to battle at times. And sometimes, yeah, you're left with, a, you know, a $50,000 loan for a car that you didn't even know about. Right. And so I think working directly with the banks and getting that resolved is, is usually the best way to do. And, you know, for smaller purchases, like, you know, usually you'll see like like a dollar transaction from a random, uh, uh-huh. you know, a gas station like you know 200 miles away or even across the country and doesn't make any sense to you right mm-hmm. and uh, and you know credit card companies and banks in general have been like very um helpful on mm-hmm. results lately so i think when you know at the smaller levels like it's it's a lot easier to get by and if you want to think about the cost of this as well it's actually very very interesting right whenever the target breach happened so many people's, you know, uh, you know, credit cards and accounts were just taken advantage of, right? And eventually, all that was reimbursed and kind of made it look seamless from the consumer level. But really, on the back end, you know, Target was, you know, fined and had to pay so much more um, and actually like reimburse like all these banks back because uh, of the amount of money that was stolen, right? So I think for now, gaining gaining uh, confidence in the consumer has been a very strong priority for these big corporations. So we're kind of like in a good place, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, like, like fortunately. Right. And you know what, you know, another thing that actually that I thought that was kind of funny, I was actually looking this up too, you know, like, you know, like a few weeks back, 
Mm -hmm. of like, you know, what other acts can you do? Of course, like you want to have like a, a security service like LifeLock and stuff like that. But some of the other like tips that I've read in the past was actually contact your local police department. Mm. And I thought that was kind of funny because like, no, that's, I don't think that's true because mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how much they'll really help you. Right. Like you go to the police station and say, Hey, my password was stolen. <laughs> They're just going to look at you like, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it's, they'll, they'll probably show you the door <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you that question, but if about if there's any authorities you should contact, and what, the only thing I've ever heard that that, that can be useful or might be uh, required is sometimes uh, insurance claims. If you're going to file an insurance claim, something they they want you to have at least have something on file, either with the cops or mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's a particular government agency like you would call maybe the F FTC. Mm -hmm. Um, and to file a report, uh, I, there is one of them. There's an identity theft report you can do at the government level, and I forget what it is. But um, yeah, and I think it's more about just kind of keeping a paper trail and yeah, paper trail. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. All right. So another very basic question. This is one I get a lot. Um, how do you? How do I know if my computer has been infected with a virus? Yeah. Um, how would you know? Right. So <laughs> I suspect well, so something. Something weird's going on. It's acting differently. But how do how do I know? How do you know? Well, I mean, get. I would say, of course, antivirus. Just mm -hmm. like have have a basic one on. Um, there's plenty available. There's a lot of cheap ones out there that you can get, and do regular scans, right? And just kind of stay away from like free games, mm -hmm. born LimeWire. If it's still around, don't do it. It'll <laughs> it'll mess up your computer for sure. But um, and I know that people do a lot of like these quizzes, so stay away from those quizzes. I mean, like. Everybody wants to know what Harry Potter house you belong right. to. Everybody wants to know like where they belong in Hogwarts, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, or what's your Patronus? You just don't want to do that, right? So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, like the like the best way to tell is just to have some AV on your uh, devices. Gotcha. All right. So um, let let's get some uh, practice tips. So you've talked about some of them, but let, let's just revisit this and make sure there's nothing we missed. So um, what are your top uh, your top three or four tips for preventing identity theft. How do, what's the, you mentioned credit freezes. I, and that's, that's a really good one. I've actually recommended often that people just do it ahead of time because that should prevent a lot of the stuff from happening. So things like that. What, what else can people kind of do proactively to either mitigate or prevent identity theft? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would definitely just use two factor authentication. Like mm -hmm. that is, it's, it's, it's a great practice using complicated passwords is also great too. Right. And, there's so many other services out there like LastPass um, mm -hmm. that can just help you, you know, generate, you know, strong passwords and, and do it frequently too. I think even, uh, you know, Google browser and, se and several other browsers do this for you too, if you want to take advantage of them. So I think that's probably the best way for, you know, pr you know pre preventing any type of identity theft. Um, I don't want to go old school. I don't know how many people print things out, but uh, if you do print things out, also shred them. I know it's, mm -hmm. it sounds very, you know, paranoid to, mm -hmm. to shred items, but there's a lot of critical things that just come through the mail that, that you just don't know about, right? For example, if you have a credit card statement that came in the mail and some more to take it, hmm. they could probably just call on your behalf and just try to, you know, reset your password or or try to get a new credit card mailed to them instead by just by having a history of your transactions that they can directly call and talk about, right? Like these other methods that these you know banks have in order to verify your your identity are also not strong either, right? So I think the paper trail thing is also um, a pretty strong method to, to to do. Isn't isn't social media another another common avenue for particularly target attacks where the bad guys uh, use that to learn enough about you to impersonate you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Yeah, I would definitely put your Instagram accounts on private and making sure that you know exactly who you're adding and and Facebook profiles, LinkedIn, all that stuff as well, right? Or if you do have, have LinkedIn, just don't have so much you know, personal information out there that, that could be used against you. So yeah, totally. That's a, that's a great one. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always thought Facebook was one of the most, uh, the most successful Trojans of all time. <laughs> uh, Trojan being, you know, the a virus because people so happily post all sorts of personal information and, you know, it, it, there's still a lot of security out there, like password resets that are based on, you know, three questions that supposedly mm-hmm. only, you know, the answer to, but there are a lot of them are like, Where'd you go to school? You know, where'd you, what was so, your well, mascot? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all on Facebook. Yeah. And what's your mother's maiden yeah. name? And all these things that you know, which is which brings me another tip that I've that that I often give is that you know when you have these questions, if that's the if that's the way your password is set, lie. There's, yeah, <laughs> there, have fake ones yeah. exactly, or exactly. you know, or put some like you know, put not in front of all your answers. Something you can remember that you know, someone with a real answer will never figure out. You know, because we they keep putting the right answer in, uh, but you know, you've you've modified it somehow so that the right answer is something else. It seems to me that there's not a lot of repercussions. You did mention that Target was fine, and I know Facebook was fine, but if you look at you know, compare the value of these fines to what they're actually making you know, and revenue every year is they're really just a drop in the bucket. And it just feels to me like there's not enough, you know, repercussions in the digital realm for when things go bad. I mean, if, you know, if you're, if you own a, you lock it, you store it place, but you mm-hmm. don't, you've got a big hole in your fence. I would think that when stuff gets stolen, you'd be held accountable for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we need, you know, like more like federal regulations around cybersecurity? Like, you know, California just, yeah, produced a really kind of a cool Internet of Things law. And I always like to say that the S in IoT is for security, meaning there isn't one, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, they pass a really interesting, you know, laws around you know, IoT devices. Like they can't all have the same default password, you know, and, and, and things like that that should have been done a long time ago. Do we? But that's only in California. So do we need yeah. more federal regulation to, to kind of force companies to make things more secure? So that's a great question. I think that there's also not enough, laws out there that actually protect these agencies either or these companies either that Mm. like when they do get breached too right so you know there's so many um you know companies out there that do get breached and and the like the penalties from sec are so high and they're kind of just left stranded right and this whole concept of cyber insurance has come along Mm -hmm. um that you know supposedly is supposed to help them and and you know like average you know protections like 100 million dollars but that's practically nothing let's say for example if you're a big bank and you're targeted and things go awry and you lose consumer confidence and, and you know, your stock goes down, that's more than a hundred million dollars worth right. of damage. Right. And I think that there's, you know, you're kind of just left on your own. So the fact that there's not much there to, you know, enforce, but also not to protect, you know, hmm. I think organizations are still behind the curve in general um, for, for cybersecurity laws. Right. You know, I, I, I play with this idea a lot. There's a bunch of flaws in it, too. But, you know, I think giving uh, giving authority to um, larger organizations to uh, to do more attribution, being able to work more with law enforcement and being able to uh, go after the, the people that that have compromised them is something that should be more um, more talked about. Right. I think, you know, right now, let's say, for example, if there's a cybercrime incident and the bank has to pay a bunch of money for it. You know, these, these banks are not filing out suspicious activity reports and it goes to law enforcement mm-hmm. and hopefully law enforcement can do something about it to catch the bad guys. Right. But there's like not a huge push as it should be. Right. Like, as I said before, like cyber crime is completely blowing up and there's nothing to help the organizations either. Right. Like they're mm-hmm. just kind of 
sitting ducks and just waiting to get attacked. So yeah, I, I think that I think that that's um, that's something to be focused on. And I know there's a couple of other initiatives and in cybersecurity laws that have been put in place in the past few years. For example, like the National Cybersecurity Protection Advancement Act, Fifteen, 15 I think, and then Cybersecurity Enhancement Act. And essentially, those are all like information sharing mm. type of uh, acts, right? And uh, you know, I worked at NCIC. You know, I, like I said, uh, US CERT and DHS is National Cybersecurity Communications and Integration Center. It's a mouthful, but <laughs> I worked there. And you know, the main mission was information sharing, right? Like when mm. threats come to you, um, you're able to you know gather it from you know private industry, intelligence community pretty much everywhere, and you want to share it as quickly as possible, right? Like, you know, like these indicators of compromise are new, they're, they're hazardous, it's, you know, there, there's a bet, like a lot of bad things that have happened associated with these, um, these, you know, several, you know, IOCs, but then at the end of the day, like by the time it gets to the consumer or the person who wants to read these reports, it's already too late, right? Like days and weeks have gone by of just clearing this information or getting to the right person, getting to the right sector, where it's just kind of obsolete, right? Like there's, you know, nowadays, like these adversaries aren't going to use the same infrastructure for every attack, right? It's kind of silly to do that, hmm. right? Have a better opportunity to, to, to get in as they're using different, different tactics and different, um, different infrastructure. So uh, I think these are, you know, good information sharing laws, like in theory, but in place, once you add, you know, they want to support this too, right? I mean, the organizations are going to add more, support and more people and more processes for every for for all these acts and eventually actually just slows it down <laughs> unfortunately hmm. so one of the more controversial things i've i've seen kicked around is this notion of hacking back um hmm. and it, you know i think that it'd probably be most applicable for you know some sort of group attacks you know some some anonymous or some other some other hacking group uh, attacks you you know fancy bear or a nation state which i guess fancy bear is too but how do you, it seems like it's a really kind of a dangerous tit for tat and, a, you know, kind of a response. What What is your take on hacking back? Like if someone hacks you, you figure out who they are, then hacking them back. Yeah, absolutely. I would, So this this should be a totally different other show we can talk about as well. <laughs> this is such a great topic. Um, I actually wrote my uh, my thesis on this for, for grad mm. school too, on, on, on uh, hacking back. And essentially there's just, it's just so hard to do, right? Because first of all, I agree with the concept that that the that the government just does not have time or efforts or capabilities to to do this for every organization that gets hacked, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in, in in theory, you know, you should be able to defend yourself, right? Because the government's not going to do that for you. And um, and hacking back, like you know, taking back the information that was stolen. I think there's a lot of uh, great ways to do that for, for for example like if every document that you had let's say we're a bank um it's just an easier analogy but let's say every document that we ever put out um let's say for example it's a mergers and acquisitions document we can put something on we can put basically like a malware on there but basically it's like uh um it, it just knows it has like a whitelist of ips that it belongs in if it not if it's you know if it's stolen or if it's exfiltrated in any way it deletes itself right there's you know minor things that you can do that so you can protect your information if it's ever stolen uh, or taken away, which is, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great idea. But then let's say, for example, like this particular doc, like, like document ends up in someone else's, um, possession and you can, you can spy on it. Right. Cause like, mm. like, well, let's say for example, this like malware, you, you didn't have a whitelist on it and you wanted to see where it ends up. And let's say it ends up in a different IP address. Um, you could potentially enable your malware. Now you're enable your document <laughs> and then wipe the entire computer. Right. Like in mm. theory, it all sounds great, but <laughs> 
let's say for example, now you want to hack back and you actually know exactly where this IP belongs and you know who it is. And now you want to, you know, do a coordinated attack against them. And I think that's very dangerous because let's say if it is, you know, someone like, you know, if it is like the government of Russia, you just, you just waged war on behalf mm-hmm. of your country. <laughs> like, congratulations, like whatever <laughs> bank you're at now you, at, you, you yourself are at war with a, with a government. So, um, <laughs> so it, it, it could be very dangerous. I think it's, it's uh, it's a fun concept, um, but I don't think anyone is nearly ready uh, to do that. There has to be a set of principles that you operate on, knowing when to you know delete your file or to um, or to hack back. It, it could be it could be very messy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems like a very slippery slope and a dangerous game. Um, but I was very curious to get your take on that. It's very interesting that you actually did a whole uh, <laughs> thing on that. So. All right, so let's let's wrap up a little bit. We've already kind of sprinkled some some good advice throughout here, but is there anything else that you might want to, as we wrap up here, you know, any other advice you'd like to give the audience on, on how to protect their stuff? Maybe we haven't really talked about privacy that much because it's been very security-oriented. Maybe we could throw out some privacy yeah. ideas. What are some, any last-minute advice you might want to give the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, of course, when it comes to privacy, you can always do the, the, like the things that have already been said, right? Like make sure you're using a VPN, service or if you if you're paranoid about your browsing you can always do tor browsing and you know i think the biggest thing about privacy is just being skeptical about uh trusting your googles and facebooks right if it's free then you're the product yep yeah well thank you very much uh this was really informative and, and you've got a very unique perspective so i was really glad to have you on the show and uh, of course i'll put the, the link to uh, 4iq.com uh, on the website and uh uh, it's so, and people can find you there if they have trouble and they want to, they want to see if they can find, uh, get their stuff back. Awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I want to say thanks once again to Amin Galani for coming on the show. Uh, very interesting perspective, a perspective on identity theft we don't often talk about on the show. So uh, that was great. Of course, you can go to the pod, uh, podcast website and get the, on the show notes, and you'll find a link to his company, 4IQ, if you want to get some more information on them. And I also found a good link uh, to a federal government identity theft site. So it's not only for reporting identity theft, but it's got some good resources for dealing with identity theft and, of course, preventing it in the first place, which is <laughs> really where you want to be uh, when it comes to identity theft. All right, next week, we will be back to a news show. Got some things to catch you up on. As always, there's never a dull moment when it comes to cybersecurity and privacy uh, these days. So we'll, we'll be talking about that and, of course, more interviews to come in the future. So stay tuned and subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss any of them. And as long as you're subscribing to the podcast, maybe throw a nice review on it there, too. That's always appreciated. If you'd like to do more to kind of support what I do, you can go to patreon.com. Uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You can find all the information there. Uh, I would very much appreciate it. If you, if you want to kind of help me keep doing what I'm doing, uh, that's kind of what, that's kind of what I need. So, uh, very much appreciate that if you want to check that out and uh, spread the word as well. So, uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in and, uh, take care until next week. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Yeah.